We are starting a, a new series this morning called The Whole Story. Hopefully you have these study guides. Um, if you don't have one of these study guides, you've got permission right now to get up. There's some on that table over there. There's some on the welcome table. Actually, Keith has a bunch of them in his hands. He'll walk to you right now. If you want to just throw a hand up, I want everybody in the room to have one of these that you can uh, take with you. The Whole Story is a, uh, a sermon series oriented to telling the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. So I want to answer this question right out of the gates. Why this series, the whole stories? I thought uh, the whole story. I thought we were in Matthew. Yeah, we preached through the Sermon on the Mount. When are we coming back to Matthew? Probably in the summer. But for now, I want to lay the whole story, this series before you, to really orient us to the story of God from Genesis to Revelation, because I want to start digging into some bigger Old Testament books together as a church. The Pentateuch, the Torah, like, I want to start, like, really diving into our Old Testaments. Now, at All of Life Church, our philosophy of preaching is something that's called expository preaching. And expository preaching, what it does by definition is it means to expose in a text what is there. It, may, it aims to make clear what the Bible says about any given passage of Scripture. And so in, in practice as a church family, we typically preach in an expository way. We'll preach through verse by verse of the Scriptures, thought by thought, passage by passage. We want to take on what is in front of us. We don't want to skip the hard stuff. But a challenge for us at All of Life is that many of us remain unsure how each book in the Scriptures connects to the other books around it, especially as it relates to our Old Testaments or the Hebrew Scriptures, right? Ad admittedly, a collection of 60-some writings by 40 different authors written over the span of 1,500 years in three languages from three continents is complex, there's a lot going on there, right? And so as we read the Scriptures, many times we're, we'll find ourselves asking these questions like, how do Abraham and David relate again, if at all? Like, what do they have to do with one another? Or who came first? Was it Esther or was it Sarah or was it Rebecca or was it Rachel or was it Eve? Hopefully we all know the answer to that one. Uh, what does the Garden of Eden have to do with the temple in Jerusalem? I don't understand how these things relate. Remind me again, which covenant are we in as we're reading our Bible? Are we in the Adamic covenant at the beginning of creation? Are we in the covenant with Noah? Are we in with the covenant with Abraham or with Moses or with David or the new covenant? What are we doing with all of these covenants? Hopefully I've got your mind spinning a bit. What's with all of the New Testament letters? How am I supposed to react to those? It seems like a very personal letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. Is that actually for the whole church to read Timothy's mail? Yeah, amen, it is. <laughs> why does the sacrificial system, what, what does the sacrificial system, or actually why does the sacrificial system in the Old Testament seem to end with Jesus and his death and resurrection in the New? All of these good questions. And hopefully we're going to answer many of them, not all of them, but many of them through our journey through the Bible together. Now, our stories have power. Stories have a particular way of anchoring truth in the mind. 
if I'm up here just like teaching like some doctrine, believe this, believe this, believe this, believe this, you know, I see it, like I see you kind of gloss over, but when I start to tell a story, like all the sleepers in the room start to, to wake up a bit and, and lean in. Stories have a unique way of capturing our attention, and every person in this room, every one of us, we have a story. We all have a story. So what, what that means is essentially we each have this way of understanding the plot of our lives and where we fit in as an individual, where we fit into this larger story of what's happening in the world around us. And so how we view our place in the story has, it has this determining factor for how we interact with other characters who are in the story along with us too. Wherever and however we see ourselves in the, in the greater story, how important we view our story to the greater story, that will have an influence on us. And so we might actually try to secure our place in the story through pursuing things like education and career and status and relationships and wealth. We want to secure kind of a, a place or we want to climb a bit higher in the story that we are living within. But here's a question for us. like When we view ourselves as the main character in our story... What does that make the other people around us? At best, it makes them co-stars. At best. But more often than not, it makes them supporting cast. And so we have this kind of functionally sneaky way of living as the hero of our own stories and kind of viewing other people in relation to how they serve us. We tend to view people for the, the, the ways that they have impact on us or they make impact on us or maybe they don't make an impact on us and so we can just easily disregard them and just write them off. When we experience success, we have a tendency to view ourselves as a kind of hero of our story and kind of posture up a bit or when we uh, experience pain or injustice, we have a tendency to view ourselves as a victim of sorts demand that somebody must atone for the way that they have wronged us, which reveals how we view ourselves in the story. I'm not making a statement on whether or not a person should atone or, or, or make what, the wrong that they've done right. Yes, they should, but how we view ourselves in the story makes a big difference, right? Um, sometimes we, we just fear that defeat is the only path before us. We mess up so bad, we, we know it, we wonder whether or not we can be redeemed. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that's just feeling that, living in that right now. You're just, you're just wondering like, man, nobody knows. Nobody knows what I've been up to. Nobody knows. And if they did, they'll turn me out. Often we can functionally occupy each of these roles at different points in our lives. Sometimes we're living as the hero. Sometimes we're living as the victim. Sometimes we live in despair. But no matter how you view yourself in any given moment, all of life, look at me, no matter how you view yourself in any given moment, there is a story, capital S story, that is more significant than every individual in this room, more anchored in history than the community that we live within. Northern Idaho has only really been, like, by our culture, occupied um, since, like, the 1870s. I mean, this community, Coeur d'Alene, Post Falls, this area, like, there's not a long history pre that, especially of, like, westward expansion, 150 years. That's not a long time. 
There's a story that's actually more secure than the nation where our citizenship resides. We're only coming up on like 250 years as a nation. We're young, 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 young. When you start to go to Europe, you start to go to the Middle East, like these civilizations, these roads, these buildings, like they have been around for a thousand years or better. The story of God has power, and that's what I'm getting at this morning. The story of God is the story of the world. It's the story of everything, literally. It's the true story occupying the center of the universe. And it's the story that makes sense of our stories, and our stories exist to support it and to make it visible, not the other way around. The story of God, it tells us something. It teaches us why our world was created. That's a big question that everybody at some point in their life, multiple times, they're asking, why? like, why? Why do I exist? Why is the world as it is? The story of God actually has quite a lot to say about why such devastating brokenness abounds. And it also is telling us what God is doing about it, both in days past and in our own day. The story of God has something for us. The story of God is also known as biblical theology. Theologians call it biblical theology. Theology comes from two Greek words. The first word is theos, which means God, and the second word is logia, which means the study of something. So theology is the study of God. And it can be argued readily that theology is simultaneously two things, the most accessible and the most complex subject of knowledge in the universe. Here's what I mean by that. It's so accessible that very young kids can apprehend and comprehend its central truths. Parents, you got little people in the room and you're teaching them Bible and they're starting to give you the Jesus answer, the God created all things answers as two-year-olds just learning to speak, like they can begin to apprehend and comprehend some of these central truths and yet... Theology or the study of God, the subject of the knowledge of who God is and all that he has done and is doing, it's so great, hang with me here, that the deepest, the greatest thinkers in all of human history combined have not sufficiently mined its truths. Combined. The headiest person you know has not sufficiently mined the depths of its truths. So some people have, uh, I think, helpfully likened biblical theology to a body of water that is so shallow on one end that a child can wade into it and play safely, and so deep on the other end that, that animals like whales and elephants have all of the room that they need. It's important. Biblical theology is the study of how and why God has created and guided history from one end of time all the way to the other end of time. And so it typically begins with Genesis, with the first pages of your Bible, and typically ends in the latter pages of Revelation. Revelation uh, 19, 20, 21, 22. And it tra- biblical theology, are you with me this morning? Are we hanging? All right, all right. Give me some like, give me some Nonverbal and verbal feedback, if you would, because I was losing you there for a minute. Um, biblical theology, it, it has uh, this like super mega theme that is uh, redemption. The story of 
how God has created, how things have gone off the rail, how he's putting it back together again, and how it will be put together again in finality. I'll get to that in a moment. That's like the super mega theme. But there are all of these other threads that run through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, all kinds of really, really cool things. I'll give you some examples. Um, Things like joy, as God is looking on creation and declaring it very good and then creating man and woman and the first response out of Adam's mouth as Eve is created is a song of praise and wonder at what God has done and who God has given to him. And it culminates with joy at this wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation. This theme of joy runs all the way throughout it, but not just joy, work, friendship, Gardens, creation begins in a garden and ends in a garden city. Trees, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the garden in the beginning. In Revelation, the tree of life is there and its leaves and fruit have a key to the healing of the nations. Like there are these themes and they run. They don't just, they don't just like, there's not a big period of absence in between, but these themes will string all the way through the story that God is writing. Like food, family, pride, like gender roles and, and the, and the beautiful distinctions between men and women, animals, rebellion, water, miracles, like all of this stuff. These themes start in Genesis and end in Revelation. And so this super mega theme, though, of biblical theology is redemption. And it is this, uh, it's revealing to us how and why God has created our world and what he's up to with it. We'll call that creation. This super mega theme has another movement too, how and why men and women have rebelled against the rule of God. We call this the fall. So we've got creation, we've got fall, but we also have this theme that's being built out, how and why God has continued to pursue people in order to bring redemption. We'll call this theme redemption. Creation, fall, redemption, and then finally, how and why God will act decisively to restore order, truth, beauty, and goodness in all relationship. We'll call this restoration. So you can kind of like hang the story of the Bible on these four headings, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now, you have this study guide. This study guide, I want you to like tuck it in your Bible. I want you to like, I want you to bring it as much as you're able um, to church with you. On the very first page, the study guide belongs to, and there's a phone number there. So you lose yours. Somebody can uh, send you a text and get in touch. This functions as something. It functions as both a journal and as a map. It functions as a journal in this way, that it gives you an eye opportunity to kind of record where we've been, to write down key themes, stuff you want to follow up on, what you have learned, right? It's, um, it's showing us, it's giving us a record of what we've discovered, but it also functions like a map too. It forecasts the way forward where we're headed. So I want you to grab one of these. I want you to have one of these and, and interact with it. It's got this really cool, quick side note. We're going to talk about the story so far 
And um, on the very first page, week one of creation, this is a spot where you can just record some notes. It's got the scripture verse that we're hanging our hat on this week. But down at the bottom on the right side, it'll show you the biblical theological themes that are being developed. Um, At this point in the story, we're talking through creation and kingdom. But then this line underneath it, the story so far, and this is the big idea of the sermon this morning, that God created a kingdom and he is the king. Now turn the page. Next week, We're going to revisit the fact that God created a kingdom and He is the king, but we're going to add something to the story. But He made human beings to represent Him in that kingdom. Turn the page. It continues to develop. So by the end, we're developing a very, very, very clear understanding of the theme and the story of redemption. Make sense? Right on. Um, As we start into the Bible this morning, we need to straighten out our thoughts, and we want to begin in the right place. Um, Meredith has been wanting me to install um, hardware on our cabinets. I love you, babe. Sorry. Um, I have put this off. Well, it is going to happen at some point, I'm sure. Now you can all hold me accountable. All right. So she's been wanting me to install some hardware on our kitchen cabinets. Now, I I am not a very handy guy, but I'm capable. My issue is lack of motivation and vision. Like, I just don't have a vision for stuff around the house and, like, fixing stuff and building stuff. I can do it, but I don't love it. The hardware on these cabinets, it costs, like, two bucks a handle. It's not expensive stuff. But if I drill in the wrong place, what happens? You got to use these fancy jigs and get it all right, clamp it on, and drill the hole, right? But if I drill in the wrong place, what happens? I've got, like, I... Pair the door, maybe, or I've got to go through the process of getting a new cabinet door. So on a project like this, do I start in like the center cabinets in the kitchen, the most visible cabinets in the kitchen? People are shaking their heads at me. No, I don't. I start in like the most obscure bathroom upstairs. Like that's where we start a project like this, right? So if it's possible for me to begin in the wrong place with something as inconsequential as kitchen cabinets, then it is possible for us to potentially start in the wrong place with God, too, the study of the Scriptures in particular. So we're going to pick up our Bibles. I want you to interact with your Bibles. I want you to bring your Bibles with you. I want you to use the Bibles on the seats around you, the black Bibles, Genesis page 1, verse 1. Fire up your apps, whatever it is for you. Let's pick up where the Bible picks up. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Are we part of the story yet? Nowhere to be found. Genesis 1 establishes God only at the beginning as creator. I've already teased it out a little bit. Our big idea this morning is God created a kingdom and He is the King. I want to try to develop some of this thought this morning. We're going to cruise through some of the early pages of Genesis chapter 1 here, the early verses of Genesis chapter 1. But here's, here's a big, like a main point this morning. Not a main point, a point that's supporting the main point, which is God created a king, kingdom and He is the King. But when God speaks, things happen. As God speaks to us, as He speaks out into creation, things happen. God is the only one there in the beginning. 
Look at verse 3 of your Bible. How does God begin His creative work? Chapter 1, verse 3. What does He say? And God said, what? Let there be. Let there be light. Look at verse 6. What does God say? And God said, let there be. Verse 9. And God said, let there be. Verse 11. Verse 14. Verse 20. You get the idea. God's creative undertaking, according to the Scriptures, originates with just His voice. Just His will. Just His words. He speaks and things happen. In His voice, there is incredible power. Later in the Scriptures, in the Psalms, it'll talk about um, like His voice is like the sound of rushing waters or many waters. You've heard the deafening sound of the ocean as it's crashing. There's another place in the Psalms where it says that His um, voice um, thunders and breaks apart the cedars, the trees. You're like, how can a voice break apart trees? Well, think about sound. You better believe that there is sound and reverberation that could even shatter great trees. The Scriptures compare His voice to that in terms of power. Now, we understand this kind of speaking authority at a human level. Right? Like a general speaks some orders and, and people scatter and make things happen. Or a president speaks a directive and aids disperse to get the job done. But here's a doctrine for you to look into on your own time. It's, um, it's, a, it's part of the doctrine of creation. Look into how God speaks and how things happen uniquely with Him. How um, He is set apart from his people and his creation by creating, it's called ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. We use materials. We use people. We use things to create, things that are already in existence. When God creates, the things aren't there. They originate with him. He creates them and then uses them to create. He has incredible authority over His creation. So He speaks and things happen, but He also has incredible authority over His creation. He's, like, he's unlike, rather, every other part, molecule, piece, atom of creation. He is not part of creation. He stands over creation. God is not a part of the creation. He stands over creation. One of my professors, Guy Gray is his name, he tells this story about um, when he, he grew up in the um, San Diego area and in the Bay of San Diego, they've got a huge naval, naval base in San Diego. And, um, and he would, like in the 70s, I believe, he would take his little motorboat, literally like a, with a little outboard motor, a little like fishing boat. He'd take it out into the Bay when the aircraft carriers would come in. And he would just like, you know, in the waves, like the wake that they create, just like stare and awe and gawk at the size, the enormity of these ships. I mean, the, the, like the gap between them is massive. Like six people would sink his boat. The aircraft carrier coming through is like able to house thousands for six months at a time. Not only that, but it's got 50 or 60 planes on deck, and it's got all kinds of other equipment and, and things going on. The aircraft carrier and the little motorboat are in the same category. They're both boats. 
the vastness is massive. Go ahead and put the picture up on the screen if you would. Like the difference between the two is massive, but they're of the same category. An aircraft carrier is a ship and a little motorboat is a boat. They're both the same, similar. God stands over his creation. Um, you might, like, just shifting gears a little bit here, um, pantheism means, like, means, pan means all, and theism means God. So it's this popular sentiment in our day. You probably see it on your news feeds. You probably see it in, you probably hear it in conversations too. Here's a recent iteration of it. I ask the universe and the universe will, the universe will deliver. I just put it out into the universe, and the universe took care of me. The universe saw my needs. Pantheism holds that all things compose this all-encompassing, imminent God. So the universe as a whole contains a sort of mind that serves you. That's kind of the thought with this. I just send it out into the universe, and the universe will hear me and respond. But the universe is actually part of creation, Scriptures tell us that God hung the stars and the fiery host in the sky. Panentheism is a little bit different. Pan means all, all is in God is what panentheism means. It's the belief that God is in everything as well. He's so interwoven with creation that he's in the forests, he's in the skies, he's in the animals, he's in the people. This spark of divine, the divine mind exists within every person. Yes, we believe that the imago, every person is created in the image of God. We'll talk about that next week. But panentheism, it's this idea that the divine is existing in everything. Biblical theology or biblical theism is incompatible with both. God is separate from his creation and he is authoritative over his creation. He is entirely separate. The, the New Testament author, um, Paul, the Apostle Paul will say it like this in Romans eleven thirty six: For from God and through God and to God are all things. To Him, to God, be glory forever. Everything exists from Him. It comes through His creative work, and it is meant to give Him glory. Think about um, the ease of God's creating work for a moment. <clears throat> These ideas in the scriptures that God said, especially in Genesis chapter 1, God said and there was. When you and I want to create, and we do create because we're created to image or to mirror God in important ways, but when you and I create, what do we do? We create a prototype, right? And we try it out, and we adjust it, and we try it out, and we adjust it, and redraft, and adjust, and maybe we end with a perfect product. Our creative work is this long process of trial and error, but the record of creation in Genesis shows us God's authority and His perfect competency. God said, and there was, there were no first drafts. There were no tweaks needed. Not only that, but He evaluated His creation. So I want to ask this rhetorical question. Is anyone, uh, is anyone capable and qualified to evaluate God's creation as a judge of it? It's not a trick question. When God created everything, He did so perfectly, and He was the only one qualified to evaluate it. So look at verse 4 in Genesis chapter 1. 
God saw that the light was good. Look at verse 10. God saw that it was good. Look at verse 12. God saw that it was good. Verse 18. Verse 21. Verse 25. And verse 31, which Dana read for us this morning. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. This means that everything is in its right place, you guys. Everything in creation is in its right place. Animals living as they were designed to live, trees producing the fruit they were designed to produce, the earth's rotation perfectly in sync. You're like, well, that's still the case. Yes, it is in most cases, the earth's rotation for sure, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking right now and you wouldn't be listening. The average temperature of the earth and oxygen levels perfectly calibrated. In short, uh, God's creation was in perfect harmony with her king. Now, this is hard, like confession, this is hard for me to imagine actually being true. Like all of creation, particularly the relationship side of things, being in perfect calibration. Why? Because all of my lived experience comes from living in a world that's filled with grief and loss and pain and crime and death, decay. Like the story of, of what I have witnessed has included much like decay and fallenness. And we cannot ignore this truth. We should not ignore this truth. But as the story develops, we will learn what has happened. Now, going back to the evaluation of God's creation, notice who pronounced the verdict. It was God who pronounced the verdict. He didn't call on man and woman to evaluate His creation. There wasn't like a panel of judges. He didn't call the heavenly hosts, the armies, the angels out to say, hey guys, like, look at this, check this out. What do you think? As if He was kind of riding on someone else's opinion. God alone qualified to declare His creation good. So what can we, here's a question, what can we learn from that? It's God alone who is qualified to evaluate His creation. What can we learn from it? We can learn many things. One of the things that we can learn is that God is sovereign over His creation. Sovereign is this big kind of fancy word that means supreme. So if God is a sovereign or is a sovereign ruler, it means that He is a supreme ruler. Can there be two supreme rulers? Not without a fight. There has to be, the definition of supreme means top, the pinnacle, no equals. Sometimes you'll hear um, Christians, you'll hear theologians say things like, um, God is sovereign, or you'll hear them talk about the sovereignty of God. And that is some shorthand. It means much more than just this, but it's short, the shorthand version of it is that God is not accountable to anyone or anything. There is no being with any kind of authority over Him, he does as He pleases, and the Scriptures attest to this, that God does as He pleases. Now, if God is cranky, and if He's capricious, this is a terrifying reality. If He is not gentle with us, if we are outside of His approval, not justified by Him. This is a terrifying reality. But if God is genuinely, I'm reading out of Exodus 34 right now, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and if He is consistently working in all things for the good of those who love Him, 
then is the sovereignty of God a doctrine that you and I desperately need? One that can fuel us. One that can comfort us in the depths of total, like, devastation. Those of us who are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ have no need of fear and terror. It's not what he's asking of us. Instead, he aims to comfort us. And though we do not have control, there is one who does, and he is looking over us. Which means that he's looking over all of our situations, all of them, even the inconsequential stuff to you. He's looking over and residing, presiding over our conundrums, the binds that we find ourselves in, our griefs, our anxieties, our physical, our mental, our emotional, our spiritual needs. He's presiding over all of these things. And one of the reasons, in a moment of just candor, one of the reasons that we are so often angered at God is because we subtly believe that He is accountable to us, not the other way around. And so we reject His sovereignty. We reject His rule. We reject the mystery that He sees further out into the future than we do, though we truly have no authority, ability, or right to do so. We're like arrogant little children telling mom and dad how to parent us. Now, if sovereign means a supreme ruler, then we could say this. We could say a sovereign ruler is a king. And God is that king. That king, this king that we're speaking about this morning and learning and hearing about, considering, has created all things. Therefore, big idea this morning, God created a kingdom and he is the king. God's creation reflects God's perfection. His creation reflects his perfection. At this moment in the story of the king, no part of the king's Creation and no part of his kingdom contains a single flaw. Everything is working and in its proper place. God's creation reflects his perfection. So from our vantage point in 2022, we're further along in the story again, and so it can be hard for us to imagine the flawless harmony of the garden and humans and creation. But we still see remnants of Eden, or remnants rather of Eden don't we? We still see echoes of Eden. Have you ever thought about this? This is a bit of a side note, but marriage is an echo of Eden. Marriage was given between man and woman before the fall. And, and marriage is meant to display something of the beauty of Christ and his church and his faithful endurance with his people. Like, when you look out on, like, for those of you who love the outdoors, like when you look out on vast mountain landscapes, and all you can see is just wilderness. Right? When you look at the blue of ocean waters, when you see, for those of you who love snow, when you see like the snow just blanket a landscape, for some of you that's hell, not an echo of Eden. That's like a remnant of the fall. <laughs> but it's not. Genuinely, like 
all of these moments, like you stare down into the Grand Canyon. That's something that I've never done, but I want to do. Like, what is the good thing that you're seeing that elevates your heart rate? As you feel small in creation, you're looking out on God's perfection. You're looking out and you're considering, you're encountering his, whether you claim it to be or not, you're encountering the power of God. You're encountering the authority of God. You're encountering the beauty and the creativeness of God. Elements of his creation are still very good. The Apostle Paul would say this in this letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.4. He said, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Everything that God still creates, still good. That was a blanket statement. We know like people and there's like issues of sin. There's things going on. We're going to talk about that next week. I don't mean to just wrap that all up and say everything is perfect and pure. We cannot... um, We cannot afford to think and to speak of God's creation apart from the God who made it. Creation and you, creation, like you and I, we're not an end in ourselves, are we? I hope that we're learning this in some way. That is reserved for God alone. He is the point of the story. Our starting point matters, doesn't it? Genesis 1:31 And God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day This gives us a view of God we cannot afford to miss We're not the central characters of the story That is reserved for God alone And further on in the story we see the person of Jesus Christ who's God himself who becomes man who lives perfectly among us, who lives for us, who lives in our place, who endures the wrath of God and the wrath of man. And in all of it has not sinned or pulled himself back, but given himself as a sacrifice so that all who look on him and trust in him can be reunited with God and given the promise Just as in the beginning, when all things were very good, so too, for those who look on Jesus Christ, there's coming a day when all of that will be restored through the might and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, who is God himself, who has come to live among us and to do for us what is an impossibility, to reconcile us to God. Lord, thank you. We look to you. We regard you as the perfect one who has created all things flawlessly. 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 We love your sovereignty. We love your creativity. We love that we are created by you, Father. And there are times when our minds are troubled by your infinite power. There are times when our minds are troubled by what you're doing in the world and what is happening in our lives. But please teach us to expand our faith in you, to hang on to our faith in you, to see eventually what it is that you are doing. You will make this clear to us. For now we see dimly, there is coming a day when we will see clearly. Help us to remain with you, to abide with you. 
we're listening. Amen.